Hey guys, thanks for joining me today. In this episode, we're going to discuss myositis, which happens to be my favorite rheumatologic disease. When we're finished, I hope you'll know the important clinical presentations of this heterogeneous group of conditions, that you'll appreciate the value of the myositis autoantibody profile, and that you'll have a good approach to the workup and management of these patients. Welcome to Rheumatology for the Royal College, where we aim to bring you reviews that will strengthen your knowledge going into exams and clinical encounters. We hope you'll find it useful and enjoyable, whether you're running, lifting, cooking, grocery shopping, driving, you get the idea. I'm your host, Dr. Kareem Ladakh, an American-trained Canadian rheumatologist. Before we start, my lawyer advised that I should say the information here only reflects what I have in my personal notes and should not be used in isolation in the management of patients, nor for your boards. I'd like to thank the McPherson Institute and Abby for supporting this podcast through their educational grants. However, it should be noted they have absolutely no editorial say in its production. Epidemiology. This is a super rare group of conditions. We're talking about 10 out of every 100,000. It's more commonly seen in women than men at a two to one ratio and can be seen across all ages, but its favorite crowd to present in would be middle-aged individuals. Etiology. Myositis, like a lot of autoimmune diseases, results from an interplay of genetics and the environment. From a genetic perspective, chromosome 6 seems to contain the relevant DNA because chromosome 6 is where we encode the HLA system, aka the human MHC, which is what presents antigens on the cell surface to T-cell receptors. HLA alleles tend to correlate with myositis-specific antibodies and their respective phenotypes. So in the future, if you get this question from a patient, since I have myositis, will my child or grandchild also get it? You can tell them that it's hard to say because it's such a rare condition, but you can confirm based on large nationwide studies, such as the Taiwanese registry, for example, that there is clustering of connective tissue diseases within families. Now, from an environmental perspective, there aren't too many studies, but we're pretty sure a lot of it has to do with environmental influence. The reason I say that is because monozygotic twin studies show a less than 50% concordance. So what might trigger myositis? Well, there's a strong association with infections, say, for example, viruses like influenza, certain food or dietary supplements, drugs like statins, UV exposure, toxic exposures like smoking. And I'm hesitant to say this because it's not like the anti-vaxxers need any more ammo, but maybe vaccines. Mechanisms. Both the adaptive and innate immune systems are at play in myositis, but let's focus specifically on the adaptive immune system, which is the one with CD4 and CD8 positive T cells, B cells, and antibodies. In polymyositis, CD8 effector T cells will invade non-necrotic muscle fibers and wreak havoc. Whereas in dermatomyositis, CD4 cells are more likely to cause the damage. It's also important to state that the majority of patients with inflammatory idiopathic myopathies or myositis will have autoantibodies. And that's all I'm going to say about mechanisms. Classification. If you've been asleep talking about the etiology, epidemiology, and mechanisms, I don't blame you, but it's time to wake up because we're getting into the meat and potatoes. This is a heterogeneous group of diseases, so you need to organize them in a logical way in your brain. 
Traditionally, we've thought about myositis clinically. It probably still remains the most common way practitioners think about this disease. And it's definitely good to broadly know these categories. Polymyositis, dermatomyositis, and inclusion body myositis. Polymyositis will cause a symmetric proximal muscle weakness without any rash. Pathophysiologically, it's driven by cytotoxic CD8 T cells that cause endomycial inflammation, whereby they infiltrate and kill healthy muscle fibers. Dermatomyositis, on the other hand, looks like polymyositis clinically, but there's also a rash. And instead of CD8 positive T cells that cause endomycial inflammation, you have CD4 cells, which like to inflict perivascular damage and perifascicular atrophy, meaning atrophy in the area surrounding a core of muscle fibers deep within the fascicle. And finally, the third major traditional category, which is inclusion body myositis. Unlike the other two, it causes an asymmetric distal weakness with biopsy showing endomycial inflammation, just like polymyositis. However, on electron microscopy, it also demonstrates its hallmark intracytoplasmic inclusion bodies or rimmed vacuoles, hence the name inclusion body myositis. But it's a lot more complex than just polymyositis, dermatomyositis, and inclusion body myositis for several reasons. Firstly, there's tons of overlap between groups, both clinically and pathologically. Secondly, there are new phenotypes that are emerging that don't fit well into these aforementioned categories. For example, necrotizing autoimmune myopathy, which is a very aggressive myositis that is frequently triggered by statins and looks totally unique under the microscope. And finally, even within these individual groups, there are significant differences. For example, classic dermatomyositis with muscle disease and clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis which is a myositis syndrome that doesn't even demonstrate clinically significant myopathy. So what I'm trying to highlight to you is that the traditional way of organizing myositis as polymyositis, dermatomyositis, inclusion body myositis is no longer ideal. Instead, we have a growing number of myositis-specific antibodies, which the majority of patients will have, and they provide a much better sense of clinical phenotype, optimal treatment strategy, and prognosis. Clinical presentation. Myositis syndromes present in a variety of ways, but they are unified by the fact that they almost always will cause muscle damage. And their muscle damage will manifest with muscle weakness, proximal, symmetric muscle weakness. I'm not referring to inclusion body myositis right now. We'll get there at the end. But most myositis syndromes will present with proximal, symmetric muscle weakness meaning weakness in the hips, buttocks, deltoids, neck flexors, and extensors. Patients clinically will complain of trouble rising from chairs, climbing steps, lifting up their arms to comb their hair, or put dishes into cupboards. And if really bad, then they may have trouble holding up their heads as well. They generally won't complain about fine motor skills early on, so no trouble writing, buttoning, things like that. Contrary to common misconception, Myalgias are only present in about a quarter or less of patients because for the most part, myalgias are not a major feature of this disease. And when they're present, they're usually mild. With the exception of necrotizing autoimmune myopathy, generally myositis will present slowly, over weeks to months. So basically, subacutely. 
Clinical exam usually won't show atrophy up front for this reason, because it's only subacute, so it's not that long-standing by the time they present. Myositis patients won't have facial muscle weakness, and they definitely will not demonstrate evidence of extraocular muscle weakness either. Okay, so if you imagine that myositis attacks the body's striated musculature, you can probably guess which other disease manifestations these patients can experience. So think about your oropharynx or your proximal esophagus, which is comprised of striated muscle. If patients have myositis affecting that musculature, they may present with dysphagia, aspiration, or nasal regurgitation. Think about the diaphragm or other respiratory muscles. So these patients may have hoarse voices or dyspnea. If you're really on the ball with your anatomy, you might also say that cardiac muscle is striated. And so some of these patients may present with massive myocarditis and heart failure. But it's actually not what you would think. Cardiac involvement is usually subclinical, thankfully. And the vast majority of patients will show either no clinical cardiac disease or may demonstrate some arrhythmias. So to illustrate muscle manifestations for you, I'll tell you about a really lovely gentleman who developed very severe myositis. I met him lying in his bed on his back in the ICU on BiPAP. He'd had a few months of progressively worsening symmetric proximal muscle weakness, but grossly had no evidence of atrophy when you looked at his muscles. He could hold and use a pen, but couldn't lift his arms or legs off the bed, nor could he flex his neck to lift his head off the bed. His face was perfectly strong with preserved extraocular movements, but he needed BiPAP to support his weak respiratory muscles. When he tried to swallow, he'd regurgitate, so required a peg. And when he tried to breathe without the BiPAP, he became weak and exhausted. And yet, despite his severe systemic striated muscle involvement, he had no evidence of CHF. So let's shift our focus a little to cutaneous disease. Skin manifestations are also quite important given that dermatomyositis patients have a ton of skin inflammation. And it's important to familiarize yourself with these manifestations. So for starters, these patients can frequently complain of a killer diffuse itch, but they also have a variety of rashes, particularly in photo-exposed areas that you should know about. One of the classics is Gautrin's papules. These are raised erythematous scaly rashes on the dorsal MCPs and IP joints. They can ulcerate, but if they do, you should be thinking more about MDA5 antibody-associated myositis or an underlying malignancy. Gautrin's sign is quite similar to Gautrin's papules, except it occurs on the dorsal elbows and knees and not on the dorsal knuckles. Heliotrope rash, named after the purple heliotrope flower, is another classic. It causes purple discoloration of the eyelids along with some edema. V-neck sign is an erythematous rash on the neck and anterior chest in the same distribution you might expect to see a tan in somebody wearing a V-neck t-shirt. Shawl sign is the same as the V-neck sign, but it's draped over the shoulders, arms, and upper back in the same way a shawl would. And holster sign is a similar erythematous rash on the upper outer thighs. Think about where cowboys sling their gun holsters. Dermatomyositis patients can also have a malar rash, but unlike lupus, theirs does not spare the nasolabial fold. And finally, they can also get nonspecific rashes on the scalp. A common finding in all of these areas, along with just erythema, is something called poikiloderma, P-O-I-K-I-L-O-D-E-R-M-A, poikiloderma. If you read that in a dermatology consultation note, it means hyperpigmentation 
hypopigmentation, telangiectasias, and skin atrophy all in one place. Biopsy of any of these areas will show you the same thing you see in lupus, which is an interface dermatitis, meaning inflammation at the dermal epidermal junction with findings of basal cell vacuolization and perivascular inflammation. If you do biopsy one of these areas, it can help to differentiate from psoriasis or eczema if these are on the table as well. The last two cutaneous findings to note would be nail fold changes and calcinosis cutis. Dermatomyositis patients can have the same nail fold changes as scleroderma patients, including nail fold erythema, telangiectasias, giant capillaries, capillary dropout, ragged cuticles, and it all kind of makes sense because as you heard before, vasculopathy is a central part of dermatomyositis pathophysiology. Calcinosis cutis then is calcium deposition that can form impressively large plaques in the buttocks, elbows, knees, and other traumatized areas. It's more so present in juvenile dermatomyositis as opposed to adult onset dermatomyositis and is also more frequently seen with the NXP2 myositis-specific autoantibody. The last organ system to touch on is the respiratory system. Along with just respiratory muscle weakness, patients can get ILD, which is one of the most common and serious extramuscular manifestations of the disease. Now, 40% of patients with myositis will have ILD, but the majority will be asymptomatic, and it won't be of clinical significance. ILD can be seen in virtually all types of myositis, but it's especially common with the synthetase syndrome and with patients who have the anti-MDA5 myositis-specific antibody. ILD can present before, at the same time as, or after the onset of clinical myositis. It can be asymptomatic, which is what it is in the majority of patients, or it can present with shortness of breath, dry cough, hemoptysis. The disease tends to have a bibasal predominance within the lungs, and on auscultation, you'll hear inspiratory crackles. The most commonly encountered pattern of ILD in myositis patients is NSIP. However, you can also find UIP, AIP, LIP, and COP or BOOP. If I haven't stressed this enough already, the autoantibody profile can be very helpful. Let's look at prognosis, for example. Patients who have ILD in the setting of a synthetase antibody will do better than their seronegative counterparts. Patients who have the anti-MDA5 myositis-specific antibody will exhibit a more severe, acute onset, rapidly progressive ILD that's more recalcitrant to therapy. Whereas patients who have the TIF1 gamma, NXP2, or MI2 autoantibodies are all relatively protected against clinically severe ILD. There's also conflicting data around the ILD risk with SRP antibodies, but we'll leave that out for now. Pneumomediastinum is a rare complication of severe myositis-associated ILD, and it should really raise your suspicion for an underlying anti-MDA5 autoantibody. Lastly, from a pulmonary perspective, these patients can also develop pulmonary hypertension. Before we move on from clinical presentation, let's talk about some syndromes you might see. And we'll start with the synthetase syndrome, which is the most common. It kind of lives both within the polymyositis and dermatomyositis worlds. It's characterized by the presence of the synthetase antibodies, also known as the amino acyl tRNA synthetase autoantibodies. JO1 is the most common by far, but there are also PL7, PL12, EJ, OJ, and others. Each has its somewhat 
own unique phenotype. It's characterized by six features, myositis, ILD, arthritis, Raynaud's phenomenon, mechanics hands, which is cracked, roughened skin on the lateral and palmar aspect of the fingers, and fevers. Again, that's myositis, ILD, inflammatory arthritis, Raynaud's phenomenon, mechanics hands, and fevers. These patients are likely to have ILD at presentation, but usually it's mild enough that it's asymptomatic. The next syndrome is clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis, or CADM. This is dermato, but without the clinically significant myopathy. If you want to be more specific, patients can be quote-unquote amyopathic, where they have no muscle involvement, or they could be hypomyopathic, where they have very little muscle involvement, but it's not clinically significant. It's characterized by the presence of the MDA5 autoantibody, MDA5. If you turn that around, ADM, amyopathic dermatomyositis, I find that's the easiest way to remember it. So MDA5, autoantibody. So one might say to themselves, wow, that's great, isn't it? No muscle disease, that's the autoantibody I want if I have to have myositis, but you're dead wrong. And the reason is because it confers a high, high, high risk for two things severe skin disease, and severe respiratory disease. From a cutaneous perspective, patients have painful palmar papules, as well as ulcerative skin lesions, including those on the fingers and ulcerative Gautrin's papules. And more importantly, from a mortality perspective, these patients have severe ILD that's acute in onset, rapidly progressive, and associated with a poor survival given that it tends not to respond to treatment. In fact, if you have severe ILD in a patient with myositis that's resulted in a pneumomediastinum, you should immediately think about the MDA5 autoantibody. The third clinical syndrome is that of necrotizing autoimmune myopathy. This is a relatively recently discovered subtype that constitutes about 10% of all myositis patients. These patients have mega muscle damage significant weakness, and a huge CK bump. We're talking median CK around the 5,000 range because there's big-time muscle necrosis. Patients with this condition frequently have had exposure to a statin, but unlike normal statin myopathy, it does not resolve when the medication is withdrawn, which would normally work within weeks. Blood work can demonstrate two autoantibodies, though these patients can also be seronegative. The first autoantibody is the anti-HMG-CoA reductase, and it makes sense because statins are HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, and the adaptive immune system is at play in this disease. The second autoantibody is the anti-SRP, signal recognition particle, SRP antibody. If you biopsy these patients, the pathologist's report will usually read a classic description as follows. There is muscle necrosis with a paucity of inflammatory infiltrate. If you read a little bit more into the details of the report, it'll say that there's cell necrosis and regeneration. There's multifocal upregulation of the MHC1s. And in sharp contrast to dermato and polymyositis, you won't see T-cell infiltrates, but instead macrophages making up the majority of the infiltrates. And these patients are generally spared from skin and lung disease. And the last clinical syndrome is not so much a syndrome as much as an association to be aware of. And that is the association of cancer and myositis. 
we're primarily referring to solid tumors. It's particularly common with dermato, but you can also see perineoplastic myositis in patients who have polymyositis. The risk is highest at the time of diagnosis, and it will gradually diminish over the following five years. Your spidey senses should be tingling for an underlying perineoplastic syndrome if you see a patient who's got more aggressive dermatomyositis. So for example, their muscle disease is so bad that they've got significant dysphagia or if their skin lesions are ulcerative. And you should also think about it if the patient's demographics fit. So if it's an elderly patient with nuance at myositis, for example. And I'm going to drop another plug here for the myositis autoantibody profile by saying that if you have access to it for that patient and the patient is positive for either TIF1 gamma, TIF1 gamma, or NXP2, you really need to be suspicious for a malignancy. And I guess I should say the silver lining of having a perineoplastic myositis syndrome is that these individuals are relatively protected against ILD. Unfortunately, there's no clear guidance on how we should screen patients with new-onset myositis for malignancy. Do you just do basic labs, chest x-ray, and age-appropriate screening, or do you do a PAN scan with CT? Personally, and based on my discussions with patients, I usually just pan scan them. Autoantibodies. A little introduction on myositis antibodies. When we talk about them, there are myositis specific antibodies, meaning antibodies seen exclusively in myositis. And then there are myositis associated antibodies, which can be seen in other diseases as well. The myositis specific antibodies, as I've been saying, are super helpful. There's virtually no overlap, meaning that in individual patients, you'll generally only see one antibody with a significant titer. And our assays continue to improve so that now about two-thirds of patients with myositis will have an identifiable myositis-specific antibody. In the myositis world, which is a heterogeneous one with multiple diseases all under the same umbrella, It provides clarity on pinpointing your disease, therefore allowing you to tailor management to the phenotype that you are dealing with in that individual patient. By the way, last thing is that you can send off an ANA with the myositis panel, but a negative ANA doesn't automatically translate into a lack of myositis-specific antibodies. For example, the synthetase antibodies are notoriously bad at giving you a positive ANA. So let's go over the individual autoantibodies because it's important to know about them. There are eight groups that I think you're going to need to know, and we're just going to do them one by one. So let's start with one of eight, which is the synthetase antibodies. These are associated with the synthetase syndrome, which you've heard of before. These are the most common myositis-specific antibodies, and you'll see them in about 20% of your myositis patients. Clinically, as you may remember from a few minutes ago, there are six features of the synthetase syndrome. They're as follows. Myositis, arthritis, Raynaud's, interstitial lung disease, fevers, and mechanics hands. This syndrome lives both in the polymyositis and dermatomyositis worlds. And specifically, the most common of the synthetase antibodies by a long shot is anti-JO1, which you've probably heard of. However, there are others too, including PL7, 
PL12, EJ, and OJ, each with their own slightly distinct phenotype. The second of the eight groups of antibodies is the classic dermatomyositis antibodies. So if you remember the dermatomyositis rashes, they include Gautrin's papules, Gautrin's sign, V-neck, shawl, holster, heliotrope rash, scalp disease, usually in photosensitive areas, and nail fold changes. There are four specific dermatomyositis antibodies, including anti-MI2 or Me2, anti-SAE, anti-TIF1 gamma, and anti-NXP2. Anti-MI2 or anti-Me2 is just a great antibody to have. It's classic dermatomyositis and the prognosis tends to be real good. So if you go to some myositis support group and there's a guy named Carl there who looks like he's super high on life, he's happy because he's got the anti-MI2 antibody. The group facilitator is gonna ask, just wanna make sure everybody's here for the myositis support group and Carl's gonna rocket his hand right up in the air and say, oh yeah, me too, except he's spelling it MI2. Now, TIF1-gamma and NXP2 are also dermatomyositis antibodies. However, unfortunately, if you see these in a patient with new-onset myositis, you need to strongly consider an underlying malignancy and go hunting for it. Antibody number three of eight, then, is MDA5, the melanoma differentiation-associated protein. You do not need to memorize the long form but you do need to know MDA5 for your exams and just to be a good rheumatologist that's treating myositis patients. These patients have a unique kind of dermatomyositis called clinically amyopathic dermatomyositis. If you turn MDA5 around to ADM, you get amyopathic dermatomyositis. These individuals tend to have at least six months of classic cutaneous features of dermatomyositis, but they tend to be a little bit more aggressive than what you're used to seeing in your average dermatomyositis patient. So they get ulcers on their Gautrin's papules. They get ulcerative lesions on their fingers. They get very painful palmar papules on the palmar aspects of their hands. They get oral ulcers. And yet despite this, they have no evidence of proximal muscle weakness. They can be truly amyopathic where they have zilch inflammation in their muscles, or they can be hypomyopathic, which is just a smidge you might pick up on testing, but clinically has no implications. And yet these patients have a very high mortality. The reason being because they develop significant aggressive interstitial lung disease in more than three quarters of patients with this phenotype. They have a poor prognosis with an aggressive course. So at the myositis support group, when Carl's got his hand up in the air looking like he's loving life, the anti-MDA5 amyopathic dermatomyositis patients are looking at him, shaking their heads, super ticked off. Antibody group number four is necrotizing autoimmune myopathy antibodies. There are two here, anti-HMG-CoA reductase, and anti-SRP. Patients with these antibodies are going to have a severe necrotizing myopathy that can be acute. They can have significant myalgias, and they'll experience a terrible proximal muscle weakness with a very high CK, median levels around 5,000. They are relatively resistant to therapy, so they must be treated early on and aggressively. When a biopsy is done, their biopsy will classically show myofibronecrosis, but a quote-unquote paucity 
of inflammatory infiltrate. Half of these patients, interestingly, have had a statin exposure, and that makes sense because anti-HMG-CoA reductase is targeting the same target as statins. In your clinical evaluation, it's a good idea to also ask about natural sources of statins, including red yeast rice and oyster mushrooms. But you don't need a statin to develop anti-HMG-CoA reductase antibodies. Like I said, only half of patients with this condition have a history of statin exposure. Unfortunately, unlike usual statin myopathy or even rhabdo, stopping the statin alone will do nothing. Patients who are HMG-CoA reductase positive or SRP positive need aggressive early therapy because their disease is relatively recalcitrant. Group of antibodies number five is the cancer-associated or perineoplastic antibodies. And you already know them, NXP2 and TIF1 gamma. These are dermatomyositis antibodies, and that makes sense because dermatomyositis in particular is associated with malignancy even more than polymyositis within the first five years of diagnosis. Antibody group number six, then, is the interstitial lung disease or ILD antibodies. These include antisynthetase antibodies such as JO1, PL7, PL12, EJ, OJ. If you're just going to remember one of those, please remember JO1 as well as the anti-MDA5 antibodies and PMSCL, so PM forward slash SCL antibodies. Now, most patients with the synthetase antibodies will eventually develop ILD, even if they don't have it on presentation. And you already know that anti-MDA5 is a particularly bad antibody to have because it can cause severe, rapidly progressive ILD as the dominant feature of its phenotype. Antibody group number seven is the juvenile dermatomyositis antibodies. And it's quite interesting because kids have the same frequency of myositis-specific antibodies as adults. And kids get TIF1 gamma, NXP2, and anti-MDA5. But the nice thing is that they don't convey the cancer risk in children. And in these kids, we see way less ILD than we do in adults we will see cutaneous disease and we will certainly see calcinosis, particularly with NXP2, but we do not see the cancer risk nor the ILD to the same extent as adults. And the final group of antibodies is called the myositis-associated antibodies. These are seen in other diseases as well and overlap syndromes. They include anti-KU, anti-PM forward slash SCL, anti-PMSCL, and anti-RO52, which we see a ton in myositis. And it unfortunately confers a worse prognosis, not only from a muscle perspective, but also from an ILD perspective. Workup. The workup of myositis is pretty straightforward. You start off with blood work. You'll do an MRI if it's available, might do an EMG, and oftentimes a biopsy as well to confirm diagnosis. In terms of the blood work, usually the first step is muscle enzymes. That means CK, aldolase, myoglobin, LDH, AST, ALT. And most commonly, the muscle enzyme most people refer to is CK. Now, it's worth noting that 5% of individuals will have normal muscle enzymes, but the vast majority, 95%, will have elevated ones. Usually, you're going to see a CK bump before you see clinical abnormalities. 
And usually the CK will start to improve before you get the clinical implications of regenerating muscle fibers and improvement in strength once you get the disease under control. The pattern of the CK elevation is important to understand. The levels increase exponentially. Therefore, a bump from 100 to 1,000 represents the same proportion of bump as 1,000 to 10,000. It's sometimes helpful to know the median CK levels as well based on myositis type. So for example, dermatomyositis will only have a peak average CK level of 700, whereas the antisynthetase syndrome will normally peak around 1,300, but immune-mediated necrotizing autoimmune myopathy will normally peak around 5,000. And normally the level of CK will reflect the degree of muscle disease activity but it can be low or negative as well in certain circumstances. For example, prednisone will naturally reduce the level of CK. Or if your patient has extensive muscle atrophy, their CK doesn't have the capability of rising as much as somebody who doesn't have as extensive muscle atrophy. Other blood work which may be worthwhile includes inflammatory markers, but I would just caution you that only 50% of individuals with myositis have elevated inflammatory markers. And finally, for labs, please get the myositis autoantibody panel. In terms of imaging, MRI is kind of your go-to. There's some data on ultrasound, particularly contrast-enhanced ultrasound, but really MRI is the mainstream imaging test. It's nonspecific, but highly sensitive. It can demonstrate inflammation, edema, scarring, fatty infiltration, and large areas of anatomy can be scanned which can help you target where you want to do your biopsy in the future and reduce sampling error. In some cases, you may find it worthwhile to do an EMG. EMGs are 90% sensitive, and they can show increased membrane irritability in the form of spontaneous fibrillations or increased insertional activity and complex repetitive discharges. Or the motor unit itself might show abnormalities, including lower amplitude or shorter duration but it's particularly helpful for ruling out neurologic diseases, including problems with the nerve as well as the neuromuscular junction, such as myasthenia gravis. And finally, biopsy. So we biopsy the proximal affected musculature. You wanna find tissue that's nicely balanced between affected but not too affected because atrophied muscle doesn't help you really at all. MRI, like I was saying earlier, can help localize which areas to biopsy quite nicely and therefore reduce sampling error. You should also be careful not to biopsy on the same side that had an EMG in the last few weeks because it can introduce a lot of artifact. Just a pro tip about the biopsy. Ask the surgeon to speak to the pathologist in advance because muscle biopsies can be a finicky procedure and precautions need to be taken to ensure a good yield. And when the pathologist does get back to you, their report may say some classic things that you need to be able to recognize. So in dermatomyositis, you may see perivascular CD4 infiltrates and perifascicular atrophy, meaning atrophy around bundles of muscle fibers. Whereas in polymyositis, you won't see CD4, but CD8 infiltrates. And the location of these infiltrates is endomyceal, meaning between individual muscle fibers as opposed to in between bundles of muscle fibers. There will be no vasculopathy and no perifascicular disease in polymyositis. 
And finally, necrotizing autoimmune myopathy or immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy will show severe myofibro necrosis with a paucity of inflammatory infiltrates. After you've confirmed your biopsy, it's worth looking for other things, specifically cancer screening. So you can decide how in-depth you want to go with that, whether it's just history, physical exam, basic labs, chest x-ray, and age-appropriate cancer screening, or the whole shebang, including a pan scan, transvaginal ultrasound, and colonoscopy. Given the prevalence of interstitial lung disease and myositis, you need to maintain a high index of suspicion so that if a patient has any symptoms or physical exam abnormalities consistent with ILD, or they have risk factors in your mind for ILD, including perhaps the synthetase syndrome or anti-MDA5 antibody, then you should be screening them for ILD. And that means chest imaging, probably best to do high-resolution CT scan, and pulmonary function tests, looking at their volumes and looking at their DLCO to see if it's reduced. The PFTs in particular are very helpful to trend over time, and they can help monitor response to treatment and trigger the need for augmenting therapy. You almost never need to do a bronch unless you're really not sure about the diagnosis or if something's a little unusual. So for example, if they have fevers or if they've developed worsening respiratory symptoms despite good immunosuppression, in which case you might be worried about a concomitant infection such as PJP. Quiz time. Okay, so let's test your knowledge with a brief six-question quiz. Here we go. Question number one. Can you name six dermatomyositis rashes? I'll give you about 10 seconds. All right. Gautrin's papules. Gautrin's sign. Heliotrope rash. Shawl sign. V-neck sign. Holster sign. A scalp rash and malar rashes that don't spare the nasolabial folds. Question two, what is the most common ILD pattern in myositis-associated ILD? Just give you a couple seconds to think about it. So it's NSIP. However, you can also get UIP, AIP, LIP, and COP, also known as BOOP. Question three, can you name the six features of the synthetase syndrome? I'll give you 10 seconds. All right. Myositis, arthritis, Raynaud's, fevers, ILD, and mechanics hands. Question four. Which myositis syndrome is associated with the following pathology report? Muscle necrosis with a paucity of inflammatory infiltrate. Give you a couple seconds. While you're at it, can you think of the antibodies that are associated with this specific syndrome? So it's the necrotizing autoimmune myopathy or immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy syndrome. And the antibodies associated with it are anti-HMG-CoA reductase and anti-SRP. Okay, question five, kind of rapid fire autoantibody testing. So name the most common synthetase antibody. Anti-JO1. Now, if you had to have myositis, which antibody would you want? Which one's just classic dermato with a great prognosis? 
I'll give you a hint. Carl from our support group had this. That's why he was so pumped. It's the anti-MI2. All right, next. A 45-year-old East Asian man is admitted with rapidly progressive ILD. He has severe ulcerative finger lesions and painful palmar papules and what looks like Gautron's papules, but his CK and muscle strength are totally normal. What's his antibody? Right, he's got the anti-MDA5, and if you want an easy way to remember that, turn MDA around and you've got ADM, which you could equate with amyopathic dermatomyositis, ADM, MDA. Last question in the antibody rapid fire review. Name two perineoplastic myositis specific autoantibodies. Just give you two seconds here. So it's TIF1 gamma and NXP2. And the last question before we move into management, please describe the biopsy findings of dermatomyositis. Give you five seconds. So the predominant cell type is going to be CD4 positive T cells. You'll have perivascular infiltrates and you'll see perifascicular atrophy. This is in sharp contrast to polymyositis, which is predominantly CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells, and they're causing endomycial infiltration, not perivascular, not perifascicular. Management. Just like all other exam scenarios, you're going to start off with non-pharmacologic management first. Social work, occupational therapy, education, support groups, diet, multidisciplinary approach, blah, blah, blah. But in all seriousness, physiotherapy and rehabilitation exercises, particularly resistive exercises, are great for myositis. The medical community used to be concerned that exercise would aggravate the inflammatory muscle condition. But over time, we've learned that it is not harmful. It does not induce further muscle damage. And in fact, it's actually beneficial, particularly if you focus on resistive exercises. Okay, enough about the non-pharmacologic. Let's talk about the juicy pharmacologic, which is what you came here for. We'll start with just your run-of-the-mill polymyositis and dermatomyositis first, and then we can delve into specific scenarios. So step one for run-of-the-mill myositis case, steroids, aka black magic, aka cure the patient's vitamin prednisone deficiency. In most cases, one milligram per kg of prednisone is very reasonable, don't exceed 60 to 80 milligrams a day. If the patient's got severe manifestations though, so they have severe muscle disease, they've got hypophonia, they've got dysphagia, severe or rapidly progressive ILD, or they've got severe cutaneous disease, consider pulsing them 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day for three days, and then you can start your prednisone one milligram per kg per day. You try to taper levels of prednisone to physiologic ranges within about six months or so. Some individuals also advocate for the ACTH injections. There's one small open-label study out of UPMC back in 2018 that showed its use in refractory myositis was actually beneficial, but it's expensive and not mainstream, so most people probably don't use it. Instead, if you need something to bail you out acutely and steroids just aren't cutting it, you can try IVIG. We know it works well based on anecdotal evidence, myself included, and based on a small New England trial back from the early 90s 
that showed patients with refractory disease had both clinical improvement and their biopsy samples on repeat biopsy also demonstrated improvement. The dose is two grams per kilogram split over anywhere from two to five days. And you can give this monthly for three to six months to induce remission and longer if you need it to maintain remission. That's step one, induction of remission with steroids plus minus IVIG. Step two then is DMARDs. And the reason you should be using DMARDs is because if you combine them at the get-go with steroids, you'll get better disease control and less relapse. You'll also reduce the steroid burden, which is really important because fractures, cataracts, diabetes, stomach ulcers, etc., all stink. First-line options include methotrexate, azathioprine, and MMF. For methotrexate, Target doses are probably reasonable around 25 milligrams a week with folic acid, obviously. You can use it PO or subcutaneously. But if the patient's got contraindications to methotrexate, say for example, if they have alcohol issues, liver disease, or they've got some background lung disease, then azathioprine is a nice choice. Two to three milligrams per kg as a daily dose. And finally, if they've got interstitial lung disease, then MMF is a great option at one to one and a half grams POBID. So let's talk second line or less commonly used options. In terms of the non-biologic DMARDs and not as aggressive chemotherapy regimens, there's some data for combination azathioprine and methotrexate at decent doses like 150 azathioprine, 25 milligrams methotrexate, and they haven't shown terrible toxicity profiles in some of the myositis studies back from the 90s. A number of patients with refractory disease who were put on this regimen did improve, but it's not something I've commonly seen done nor done personally myself. Calcineurin inhibitors have also been used as second-line therapy, like cyclosporin or tacrolimus, but they have their own array of side effects, including nephrotoxicity and hypertension, and you need to check serum levels, and there are probably better second-line therapeutic options out there as follows. Probably the most popular second-line therapeutic option is rituximab. It's an anti-CD20 antibody or anti-B-cell antibody. And there's decent data on rituximab in myositis. The famous study that's worth knowing the name of is the RIM trial, R-I-M. And it's the best one to quote. 195 patients with myositis, including dermatomyositis, polymyositis, juvenile dermatomyositis were all represented in good numbers in this trial. To be included, you had to have already failed steroid and DMARD combination. Patients were randomized to start rituximab at week zero or at week eight, and the primary endpoint was time to achieve a preset definition of improvement. This outcome was not different between the patients who started up front and those who delayed treatment at eight weeks. In other words, it was a negative trial. But By the end of the trial, in other words, 44 weeks later, 83% met the definition of improvement, and the median time to improvement was only 20 weeks. The authors also reported a lack of significant adverse events, and they said there was a substantial reduction in the steroid burden. And so now most rheumatologists do believe that rituximab works. A very much third-line therapy then is cyclophosphamide, which is generally reserved for severe muscle disease or really bad ILD. The common dosing for myositis is probably 500 milligrams per meter squared every month for six months with adjustments based on the WBC nadir. 
But there was a study by the forward-thinking Swedes at the Karolinska Institute, which tested the low-dose or urolupus nephritis protocol with 500 milligrams every two weeks for six doses. And it seems like it probably would work, but does need to be studied further. And before we move on to experimental therapies, I would just mention IVIG again. I mentioned it already as an induction therapy, but don't just think of it as a bailout strategy. It's also quite good for maintenance. The problem is that it's just very costly because literally hundreds to thousands of individuals are required to get enough immunoglobulins for a course of therapy. Very briefly, I'll just mention some pipeline drugs. I'll say that abatacept has some good early phase data behind it, so we might be seeing that in the future. It also appears the JAK kinase inhibitors have triumphed quite nicely in amyopathic dermatomyositis, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And I'll also mention that there was a recent small early phase trial on tocilizumab or Actemra in myositis. There was a lot of hope around it, but it fell flat on its face, so I wouldn't use that either. Let's just talk about some specific scenarios or the what ifs. So what if your patient has necrotizing autoimmune myopathy or immune-mediated necrotizing myopathy? You want to hit them hard to avoid long-term muscle damage or weakness because this is an aggressive disease. So you can start off with steroids and methotrexate, but you should have a very low threshold for pulse doses of steroids, IVIG, and rituximab. There's actually quite good data for IVIG coming out of Hopkins and the NIH in necrotizing autoimmune myopathy. So the second what-if scenario is what if my patient has lung disease? Well, when you have a patient who's got myositis-associated ILD, you decide therapy plan based on disease severity and prognostic factors. Good prognostic factors might include young age, way more ground glass than fibrotic changes, and an NSIP pattern. Whereas poor prognostic factors might include older age, UIP pattern, and more fibrotic changes than ground glass changes. So if your patient has mild to moderate myositis-associated ILD, then one milligram per kilogram of prednisone with simultaneous initiation of a DMARD is quite reasonable, specifically a conventional synthetic DMARD. So the ones we would use in ILD would be MMF or azathioprine. But if your patient's got more severe disease, then rituximab and cyclophosphamide are very reasonable. If you sent off the myositis autoantibody panel and it comes back positive for an anti-MDA5, then you should be very concerned that this patient is at high risk for an aggressive, rapidly progressive ILD that is scary and has a six-month mortality as high as 50% even when treated with appropriate immunosuppression. And so we used to just treat those patients with rituximab, and if we couldn't get our hands on Ritux, than MMF or cyclophosphamide. But enter a New England letter to the editor from Shanghai in July 2019. They described an open-label trial they'd performed to look at JAK kinase inhibition with tofacitinib in patients who had MDA5 autoantibody-positive interstitial lung disease. They looked at 18 consecutive patients, each of whom were seropositive with ILD confirmed on HRCT, and an FVC of at least 50%. They treated all of these individuals with tofacitinib 5 milligrams POBID and compared them with 32 historical controls from 2014 to 2017. If you look at the table one in that paper, they line up really nicely, except the historical controls actually had a lot more immunosuppression and they got a lot more perfenidone. 
And what they found was that at six months, all individuals in the tofacitinib group survived. In other words, they had a 100% survival rate versus in the historical control group, despite aggressive antifibrotic and immunosuppressive therapy, their survival was only 78%. So it's caused quite a stir and everybody's real excited about tofacitinib. And the last what if is what if my patient has cutaneous disease? Well, you can treat them with non-pharmacologic interventions, including photoprotection. You can use topical therapies like steroid or tacrolimus creams. You can try hydroxychloroquine, which won't help the muscles, but can help the skin symptoms quite nicely. But usually you'll need moderately intense DMARDs, including methotrexate, MMF, azathioprine. Rituximab actually showed a nice improvement in the skin in the RIM trial. And IVIG. If you find you have a case that's recalcitrant, you could try tofacitinib. Unfortunately, calcinosis, which is those plaques of calcium that build up in dermatomyositis patients, particularly those who are NXP2 positive, that's a little different. You can try sodium thiosulfate. You can try bisphosphonates, otherwise surgical excision if it's really bothersome. But these are quite hard to treat. Prognosis. The good news is that most dermatomyositis and polymyositis patients will respond to therapy though they may be left with some residual degree of weakness that will not recover. Recovery very much varies by subtype. So for example, half of patients with necrotizing autoimmune myopathy will be left with long-term significant muscle weakness, even after continuous good therapy for a couple years. The mortality in myositis is only around 10%, and that's mostly from malignancy and ILD. Okay, now the last thing we're going to discuss very quickly is inclusion body myositis. This is a disease unto its own, even though it falls under the myositis umbrella. There's no specific autoantibody for inclusion body myositis, but half of patients have a CN1A, and it conveys a worse prognosis. Unlike your usual run-of-the-mill myositis, inclusion body myositis is seen more commonly in men than women, and it is not seen in kids. Unlike usual myositis, it is not proximal. In fact, it loves the finger flexors and knee extensors. And unlike the subacute onset of your usual run-of-the-mill myositis, inclusion body myositis comes on very, very, very gradually. It creeps up on you over years. And so by the time you've seen them, you may see some atrophy and the patients have minimally elevated or normal CK levels. However, these patients do not get ILD, they don't get skin disease, and there's no malignancy risk associated with the CN1A antibody. If you biopsy them, it kind of looks like polymyositis under the microscope, at least early on. And it's not until quite a bit later that you'll see the rimmed vacuoles and eosinophilic cytoplasmic inclusions. These patients are resistant to therapy, period. It isn't amenable to treatment, so don't treat them with steroids or immunosuppression. You're only going to do them harm. And it can be kind of a tough diagnosis to make, so that sometimes it's only until you've tried and failed treatment that you realize what you have in front of you is not polymyositis, but inclusion body myositis. Quiz time. All right, guys, just three questions to review before we wrap it up today. Question one, what are the three first-line DMARDs for myositis? 
I'll give you five seconds. Methotrexate, azathioprine, and MMF. Azathioprine is particularly good if you have contraindications to methotrexate, like alcoholism or liver disease, or if the patient's got underlying lung disease. MMF is particularly useful if you've got somebody with lung disease. Question two. What is the name of the negative rituximab trial that was still able to show 83% improvement at the end of the trial? We'll give you a couple seconds. All right, it was called the RIM trial, R-I-M, rituximab in myositis, and it's a great landmark trial. Okay, the final question. Which drug has recently drummed up excitement with a 100% six-month survival of MDA5-positive ILD patients in the case series that was published in the New England and authored in Shanghai? Give you just a couple seconds to think about this. Right, it was the JAK kinase inhibitor, tofacitinib. And that's it for today, guys. Great job on making it through this topic. You deserve a well-earned break. If you enjoyed today's session, please subscribe. I would also tremendously appreciate your feedback in the form of an Apple podcast review, or feel free to email me with suggestions for future episodes, content accuracy, or sound issues. My email is roomfortherc, that's R-H-E-U-M-F-O-R-T-H-E-R-C at gmail.com. Have a great one.